Good morning once again, everyone. Well, if you're new with us, for the last four and a half months, we've been working our way through a series which we've entitled, yes, four and a half months. <laughs> well, we've entitled this series, The Battle for Truth. And we have pointed out that all around us, there is raging an invisible war. And just because we can't see it, doesn't mean it's not real. It is very much real. It's a war that's going on around us that's being waged for the souls of men and women, people that we love, people that we know, people that you work with, perhaps, that are unsaved. It's a battle, really, between the God of truth and Satan, who is the father of lies and in whom there is no truth, as Jesus said. Now, make no mistake about this. They're not evenly matched. And God will be victorious. But it does beg the question, what is truth? We're in a battle for truth. God is the God of truth. What is truth? You know, by the time that Jesus walked on the earth, the Greek philosophers had so debated to death the concept of truth, whether it was real or imaginary, whether it was knowable or unknowable, whether it was objective or subjective. They had so debated the whole idea of truth to death that, you know, the common person had given up being able to ever find out what truth really was. And I think that we can see some of this in the cynical despair of Pilate's response to Jesus on the morning that Jesus stood before him of his crucifixion. And Pilate asked him, Are you a king? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, What is truth? And walked away. What Pilate didn't know was that several hours earlier, Jesus had prayed to his father and said, Father, I put my disciples in your hands. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus told us what, what truth is. And yet the world remains for the most part still ignorant as to the true nature of truth. An editorial entitled Truth in the Los Angeles Times noted that in a contemporary eight-volume encyclopedia of philosophy, truth has only three lines. Theories on how to talk about it, but it said nothing about the nature of truth itself. Now, I believe that people today really want to know what truth is, but they're just as confused as Pilate was back then. And because of it, I think most people have come to the conclusion that either truth doesn't exist or that it's subjective, which means it, truth is whatever each individual person believes it to be, or it's unknowable altogether. And because people have given up, I think, knowing what truth is, for the most part, they're open to all kinds of lies. But again, Jesus said that he came to this world to bear witness to the truth. And he said that God's word is absolute truth. And yet, those who are still looking for truth refuse to come to the Bible, many of them, to find the answers to their lives' problems and how to live their lives. As one author said about the Bible, it is the truth about life and death, time and eternity, heaven and hell, right and wrong, men and women, old people and young people. It is the truth about children. It is the truth about society. It is the truth about every relationship between God and man, between man and man, between man and creation. It is the truth about everything that's needful, end quote. Now, in the New King James Version, the word truth occurs 237 times. And in Scripture, truth has two basic meanings. First of all, it deals with temporal facts that man may observe about himself and the physical universe around him, including the truthful reporting of those facts. And secondly, it deals with eternity, spiritual reality, those things that pertain to God, and the relationship that he has to his creation. 
And really, when the Bible speaks of truth, it usually is referring to the latter. Truth that relates to God, his character, his nature, his actions. And that spiritual truth that deals with our relationship to God. Because obviously, that's eternity. And that is a very important issue. Now, I'm not going to read all 237 verses, but I'll give you a few. As we kind of set this study up. It says of God in the Old Testament, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. And the Lord passed before Him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his work is done in truth. The entirety of your word is truth, the psalmist said, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Your mercy reaches unto the heavens, and your truth unto the clouds. And then in the New Testament we read, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The New Testament tells us that the truth of God will either save us and set us free from the power of the devil, or it will judge us someday if we reject it. And therefore Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the word of God brings life to unbelievers. It sets them free. When I say the word of God in that context, I'm talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When received and applied to a person's life, will set them free from the bondage of sin and death, from the power of the devil, and to those of us who have received it, then the word of God in its entirety brings us victory and fruitfulness and the abundant life and joy and peace and so on. The word of God brings us victory in this battle against the devil. And so way back in the Garden of Eden, the devil declared war on God's word. And we've already talked about that in detail. But I just mention it again, because as we move into the second part, main part of this series, we've already looked at the lie, which the devil has used from the beginning to deceive people, and we'll use through the Antichrist as the ultimate deception in the end. And now we want to focus on the truth. And so as we transition into this next major section of this series, we know that the truth is living and powerful. It's the word of God. And the devil knows that if you have the truth and you live it and apply it and share it, he's defeated. So he's declared war on it. 
And the attacks of the enemy against the word are happening on a number of different fronts. And in the weeks to come, we'll look at some of these. But it's one thing for Satan to come against the word in a direct frontal assault, denying its authority, denying its accuracy, and so on and so forth. However, it's another thing altogether when he tries to pervert the word itself. Attack it directly, deny it, whatever. But when he takes it and he perverts it and he twists it, that is the most dangerous attack of all. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, over the years, there have been a number of modern translations and paraphrases of the Bible that have been made available to the body of Christ. Some of these have been a great blessing. Others have been a perversion of the truth. And I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at three of them. Because you need to be aware of what's going on. If we're going to battle for truth, we've got to understand that the devil is attacking the truth in a way that would have been unheard of years ago. Using Christians who mean well, many of them, but are giving us translations and paraphrases of the Bible that are playing right into the devil's hands, perverting the very truth that will set men and women free. I like to start with the first one, something called today's New International Version, or the TNIV. The Today's New International Version has recently been released. Its publisher is Zondervan, which is owned by HarperCollins, a secular company, which also, by the way, publishes Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible. Zondervan is a mess, and I didn't want to go there this morning. But the TNIV tweaked the NIV in some places, as the publishers said. But the most significant and controversial changes were made to make the TNIV more gender neutral or what they call gender accurate. Now, you've probably heard of this. For example, in the TNIV, today's New International Version, the word man is often replaced with the word person or mankind or humankind. The singular pronoun he is often changed to they or people. Likewise, words like uh, word like brothers could be translated brothers and sisters, son, child. Words like man or husband are often changed to other, you know, as in significant other, I guess. The word father is changed to parents, which does away with the God-ordained gender role of a man in marriage and family. If you think about that, God has set up very specific gender roles for men and women, roles that they play in marriage and family in the church even, but in this gender-crazed society that wants to homogenize and androgenize everything into one kind of bland oneness, all this stuff is being, you know, changed. And so you have man and husband and father messed around with, destroying the God-given role of men in family and in marriage and so on. Even the masculine pronouns used for Jesus and God, he and him, are changed to the words, the one. Because God can't be masculine. God is both. He's, you know, feminine and masculine, they tell us. So he's the one. He's not the father. He's not him. To opponents of the TNIV, the change of smack of political correctness and bout of feminism, Jerry Falwell commented on this and said of the TNIV, this new publication is nothing more than an acquiescence to feminists who are more concerned with the so-called language of equality than they are the message of the gospel of Christ, end quote. Southern Baptist Theological Seminary professor Al Mohler said, and I quote, those who champion a feminist agenda will cheer the announcement of the TNIV. But the moment we begin to translate the Bible so that it, so that it will be less offensive to one group or another, we insult the very character of the Bible as the eternal, inerrant, and authoritative word of God, end quote. And I agree with that. How about the message? And I don't know who owns the message in this church. I'm not singling anybody out. The message published by Nav Press is a paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. The New Testament was published in 1993, and the complete Bible was released in 2002. One author who critiqued the message had this to say, and I quote, Peterson's purpose in this is to present something new and provocative at every turn. 
something vivid and unusual in order to stir up the dull minds of people who have become bored with their familiar Bibles, end quote. And that's pretty much Peterson's comment. Many have praised the message as being a wonderful, easy-to-understand version of the Word of God. But make no mistake about it, the message is not the Word of God. It's the Word of Eugene Peterson. It's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. What is a paraphrase? A paraphrase is when somebody takes the Word of God and they put it into their own words, expressing what they think it means or sometimes what they want it to say. So a paraphrase is one man's interpretation of what God has said or, again, sometimes changing what God has said to make it more politically correct or socially acceptable, especially if the person paraphrasing the Bible has a problem with certain areas of classic theology and Christian dogma. The errors in this paraphrase are numerous and serious. The message cannot be relied upon to convey truth. It will mislead and even perverts what God intended through his word. I'll just give you a few examples. In John chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible actually says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The message renders it, the Word was first, the Word present to God, God present to the Word, the Word was God, in readiness for God from day one. What does that mean? I mean, how is that garbled mess? Wow, how could we have missed it? It's so clear. I mean, you know. It just speaks for itself, yes. I mean, in the beginning was the word is changed to the word was first. First before what? First before God? First before man? First before creation? What are we talking about? And what does it mean in readiness for God? What does that mean? John 3, verse 5. Except a man be born of water... And of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. The message puts it this way. Unless a person submits to this original creation, the wind hovering over the water creation, the invisible moving the visible, a baptism into a new life, it's not possible to enter God's kingdom. And again, that's confusing at least and misleading at worst. I mean, the statement, a baptism into a new life, seems to imply baptismal regeneration, which we evangelicals thoroughly reject. We don't believe the Bible teaches that you have to be water baptized to be saved. And we've talked about this. I'm not going to go through it again. But it kind of gives that impression. Again, one author who critiqued the message said this, long and formal sounding sentences in the original are often simply replaced with punchy phrases. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you is replaced with a jovial, enjoy the best of Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us becomes the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. But listen, this author goes on to say this. The reader who mistakes this cavalier treatment of the text for a reliable translation is in danger of being misled at many different points. This danger is well illustrated by the following paragraph from a review of the message which recently appeared on a religious homosexual website called Spirit and Flesh. Here's what they said about this paraphrase. What about the passages against homosexuals, you might ask? Well, Although we found his translation of Romans 1, verses 26 and 7 a bit off, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 have been liberated from their homosexual bias and are translated in ways that are much more inclusive and truer to their original intent. We at spirit and flesh say, nicely done, end quote. Well, let's look at those two scriptures for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now Paul is talking here in very serious, emphatic terms. 
What he is about to say is extremely important because it deals with people's eternities. And so he wants to express this in the clearest, most cogent and pungent way he can to really express the severity and the importance of what he's trying to get across here. And he went on to say, Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. The message puts it this way. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other use and abuse sex, use and abuse the earth and everything in it, which is not, not even in there, he added that, don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Now, he left out all the specifics that Paul talked about and basically just said this, unjust people who don't care about God are not going to get into heaven. Well, a homosexual says, oh, I care about God, and I'm a law-abiding person. And I don't abuse sex. I am tied to one person and have been for many years. I'm living in a faithful, monogamous relationship with my partner. And the, and the, and the, and the statement, and who use and abuse the earth and everything in it, smacks of environmentalism, which a lot of churches have gotten heavily into. Not that I'm for destroying the environment, but some pr people are worshiping the creation rather than the creator today. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, this is what the word actually says, where Paul said to Timothy, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Here's what the message says. It's obvious, isn't it, that the law code isn't primarily for people who live responsibly, but for the irresponsible, who defy all authority, riding roughshod over God, life, sex, truth, whatever. Now again, he leaves out all the specifics, and basically just kind of makes it seem as though if we live a responsible life and respect authority to some degree, as long as we agree with it, we're going to get into heaven. Now, let me just say this. The Bible has some very serious things to say about homosexuality. But it's not just homosexuality, right? In the list that Paul gave us in 1 Corinthians 6, he talked about a lot of different people involved in a lot of different practices. It wasn't just homosexuality. And he said none of them are getting into heaven if they continue to practice those things and don't turn to Christ for salvation and forgiveness of sins. Some Christians jump on the homosexual part and they just beat that drum to death. And they take it to such an extreme as they hate homosexuals. Jesus Christ never hated homosexuals or anybody else and desired for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if we're faithfully following our Savior, we're not going to hate homosexuals or anybody else. We're going to want to reach out to them. And love them. But you don't love people by telling them, look, you're fine. God loves you just like you are. You're a homosexual? No problem. You're a fornicator or idolater or adulterer? No big deal. As long as you love God and, and, and try to be a good person in other ways, you're going to make it. That's a lie and that doesn't help people. And we need to speak the truth in love. And Paul said to the Corinthians, after he listed all those sins that he listed, he said, and such were some of you. But God saved you, and he washed you, and he justified you. And that's what he wants to do with all the people of this world who are involved in these things. But when you take those things out and you dumb down the Bible to help people to better understand it, I don't quite get that. I think people are smart enough to think for themselves. We don't need to dumb the Bible down. Apparently, Mr. Peterson doesn't think that people are capable of thinking for themselves. So they need his help to kind of dumb things down so they will get it. But they're not getting it. He's, he's taken out most of the truth that God wanted these people to know. I like what Pastor John MacArthur said concerning this thing. He said, and I quote, Scripture must be treated with reverence and care because it is the self-revelation of God. 
The psalmist writes, Thou hast magnified thy word above your name. In Psalm 119, verse 161, the psalmist adds, My heart stands in awe of thy words. While in Isaiah 66, verse 2, God declares, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Playing fast and loose with God's word and revising it and updating it, to me, is not reverencing God's word. There is a great lack of reverence and respect for the word of God today. And these translations and paraphrases, I think, reflect that to a very large degree. But by far, the most demonic and dangerous Bible that has come out recently is one that is called the Renovere Spiritual Formation Study Bible, also published by Zonder Van Harper Collins. One of the people who praises the message up and down is Richard Foster. Richard Foster is the founder of the Renovere Movement and general editor of the Renovere Spiritual Formation Study Bible. In fact, Foster loves the message because it supports that movement, the Renovere Movement. In fact, he loved the message so much he made Eugene Peterson consulting editor of the New Testament. The Renovere Bible includes the Apocrypha and says this, most of the church throughout much of history has accepted the Deuterocanonicals as Scripture, the Apocrypha. That's not true. The evangelical church throughout history has never accepted the Apocrypha as being Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church has included it in their Bible, and as you well know, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church claims that it's Scripture and belongs in the Bible, but the evangelical church has never accepted it as Scripture. What is the Apocrypha? It's 13 books that were written between the time the Old Testament closed and the New Testament began. So the time between the end of Malachi and the birth of Christ, 13 Jewish books were written. The Jews never accepted these books as inspired. I mean, this would have been in their holy scriptures. But they rejected it. Why? It was, they're loaded with errors and, and contradictions. But the Catholic Church has included them in their Bible. Now, let me just say this before I go there. How could those 400 years between Malachi and the birth of Christ, what theologians call the 400 silent years, why? Because God wasn't speaking. God wasn't giving any prophetic revelation. How could books written during this time be inspired by God when he wasn't saying anything? But from the Apocrypha, the Roman Catholic Church justifies purgatory, prayers for the dead, and their eventual redemption through a propitiatory sacrifice, which justifies the Mass. From the Apocrypha, it bases the purchase of forgiveness of sins, the worship of angels, prayers to the saints, and their ability to intervene in our lives. All that comes from the Apocrypha, yet the Renovere Bible asserts that Deuterocanonicals do not affect any central doctrine of the Christian faith. Why well, I disagree with that. The Apocrypha was never quoted by Jesus or the apostles in the Gospels or in the epistles, even though the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament more than 250 times. The Apocrypha is never quoted once. Even the Renovere Bible acknowledges that the Apocrypha shouldn't be on the same level as the Bible. It's only helpful, as they say, for spiritual formation. Well, what is that? We'll talk about that later. Which led one commentator to say, if that's the case, then why include it in the same volume as Scripture and without any warning concerning its heretical teachings? This Bible is a study Bible. It's called the Renovere Study Bible. And the idea is it will help you to understand the Bible better. Because along with the Scripture, and by the way, it uses the most ecumenical translation out there, the New Revised Standard Version. And then periodically, as the Scriptures are laid out, there are explanatory notes, explanations, comments by the scholars that contributed articles or comments or notes of explanation throughout this Bible to help you better understand what the Bible is all about. The Renovere Bible claims that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 
are neither historic nor scientific, and that the entire book of Genesis is merely a collection of myths. Listen to what they say. This is right out of the Bible, the Runnerberry Bible. Genesis began as an oral tradition of narrative stories passed down from generation to generation. These stories gradually took on theological meaning. Over time, they were, they were written down and collected together and became Genesis chapters 12 through 50. And then a prologue or an introduction was placed in front, which was chapters 1 through 11. Borrowing from other creation accounts, stories with parallels to ancient Near Eastern religious narrative and mythology were reshaped into, or excuse me, were reshaped with monotheistic intent. These strands of varied materials were gathered and edited into the written text. You know what they've just said? They have just said that the book of Genesis, which is the foundation for the Bible, the, book, the word Genesis means beginnings. Every major doctrine in the Bible starts in Genesis. If you take away Genesis as being the inspired, authoritative word of God, you've taken the foundation away from the rest of the Bible. The devil's no fool. And what they're saying is, the book of Genesis is nothing more than a collection of pagan myths and folktales that were collected from Eastern religions and different other, you know, oral traditions from different uh, cultures and things, and brought together and edited and stuck in the Bible as if it was the Word of God. But if Genesis was not literally inspired by God, how can any of us have confidence in anything else in the Bible? I mean, if you can't trust the first book in the Bible, which forms the foundation for everything else that comes after it, how can we trust anything in the Bible? And what about Paul's statement? When he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And when he said that, what did he have in mind primarily? The Old Testament. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Peter said, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's inspiration. Jesus often quoted from the book of Genesis in the Gospels. And many times when he quoted, he attributed those passages to Moses by saying the things that Moses commanded. You know, after he quoted from Genesis, he said, and the things that Moses commanded, attributing Genesis to Moses, because they claim, I don't think I mentioned this, yes, I, I forgot to mention, they deny the divine authorship of the scripture, and even that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But Jesus quoted Genesis and said, Moses said this. Jesus called the Pentateuch the law of Moses in Luke 24, verse 44. The Bible itself, in numerous places, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto all the elders of Israel. And so on and so on. I mean, the whole Pentateuch is loaded with references to how Moses wrote these first five books. Yet the Renovary Bible says, no, he didn't write that. That's a liberal view, by the way. What about the book of Daniel? Well, the Renovary Bible declares, we do not know who wrote it or exactly when it was written. It was most likely partially written during Antiochus Epiphanes' persecution of the Jews in Babylon, which began with the desecration of the temple in 167 B.C. Daniel wrote his book in the 6th century B.C. But liberal scholars have always had a problem with that because the prophecies in Daniel are so specific. Now remember, Daniel wrote during the Babylonian captivity. And after the Babylonian Empire fell, it was going to fall to the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And of course, the last world-governing empire would be a revival of the Roman Empire, with ten nations that would rule the entire world. But liberals have a problem because those prophecies that Daniel gave of the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, were so specific 
They couldn't have been written in the 6th century B.C. Why? Because liberals don't believe in prophecy. They don't believe in the supernatural. They don't believe God's big enough to tell you what's going to happen before it happens, which is how we know the Bible is the word of God in the first place. They don't believe that. So they can't have Daniel writing the book of Daniel in the 6th century B.C. He's got to write it in the... It's got to be written by a scribe who called himself Daniel in the 2nd century at the earliest B.C. after everything happened, and he's just writing down history, not giving you prophecy. Of course, the Renovary Bible discounts all of that, just parrots and echoes the lies of the liberals that have been going on for years. We don't know who wrote the book of Daniel, they say. Well, you know, when we taught the book of Daniel, I pointed out to you every time, go home today, and just for fun, skim through the book of Daniel. And notice how many times you read the phrases, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision. I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. In the first year of Darius, I, Daniel, understood. I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I mean, over and over and over again. Why? Because the Holy Spirit didn't want us to miss who wrote the book of Daniel. And yet the liberals come along and say, well, we don't know who wrote the book of Daniel. Well, you know, I mean, come on. The scholars who contributed to the Renovary Bible continually downplay all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus, his coming. Isaiah chapter 6, excuse me, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, we all read that around Christmas time because that deals with the coming of Christ to the earth. They claim, no, that's not about Jesus. It just speaks of human people, agents, human agents. The study notes reduce Isaiah's prophecies to just tradition and would have us believe that the book of Isaiah really wasn't written by Isaiah, but three other people. This is the liberal view, always has been. They even deny that chapter 53, that incredible chapter that we read so often around Good Friday. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was beaten for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. They say, no, that's not talking about Jesus. They deny that that is about Christ. They also say that the book of Isaiah is nothing more than poetic imagination. Isaiah just imagines these things. These scholars declare that the prophets of Israel are not to be thought of primarily as predictors of the future. They were poets. Poets. <laughs> See, you have to do away with the prophetic if you're a liberal. And I'm just shocked and amazed because some of the people that contributed to this Bible, I recognize their names. And I've always believed to be good, solid scholars. I just, I, I'm, I'm dumbfounded today, folks. I, I am dumbfounded. People that I have respected for years and read their books are endorsing books that are blatant occultism or New Age thinking or just go against everything the Bible says. I don't get it. I know the Lord's coming back soon. All the major prophecies so crucial to proving the Bible is the Word of God and Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah are either not commented upon or are spiritualized away as pertaining to the faith community and its spiritual formation. What is this spiritual formation you keep talking about? Hang on, I'll tell you. There is no recognition of the great prophecies in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that Israel was going to be brought back to her land in the last days and that God would preserve her supernaturally. Well, folks, that's not surprising because 90% of the church today, I'm talking about the church in general, denominations, independent churches, 90% believe in replacement theology. That... Israel blew it. When they rejected their Messiah, they blew it. God permanently set them aside, and now the church is spiritual Israel, and we have inherited all of Israel's promises. And all you got to do is read Romans chapter 11 to realize that God has not cast off Israel forever, but has set her aside temporarily to use the Gentiles, who we, he's grafted into the promises that God gave to Israel. We're spiritual Jews, but God has a, has a, a plan for Israel still. And in fact... The fact that Israel exists as a nation today is a testimony to the existence of the God of Israel. There is no way that nation should be alive today. The very fact that they continue, and it's like Psalm 124 says, unless the Lord had protected us, our enemies would have swallowed us up. That's exactly the truth. There's no way you can explain Israel's existence except for the hand of God. I'll give you one example. 
this is a powerful one. We all know this scripture. It deals with the last days. The promise from God to bring back the Jews that were scattered all over the world. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 8 through 14. God promised he was going to bring back the Jews that were scattered all over the world in the last days. You know how the Redivary Bible interprets that? It's a promise to all homeless people that homeless people will someday have a home. So if you're homeless, God promises he's going to bring you home. And the promise that Israel can never be destroyed out of Jeremiah 31 verses 35 through 37 is ignored altogether. As I said, Israel in the Renovary Bible is treated as being replaced by the church. And incredibly, the valley of dry bones vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel 37, you remember that? When God showed Ezekiel a vision of a valley of dried bones? And God said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel said, Lord, you know. And as Ezekiel stood there and watched, these bones began to rattle. And they began to come together. And they formed skeletons. And then on the skeletons formed muscle and skin. And then they stood up. And that was a prophecy that although Israel was scattered in 70 A.D. And for almost 2,000 years the nation was dead. That God was going to regather it into, their, into the land in the last days. Exactly what he has done. But they say, no, that's not talking about Israel, even though it clearly says these bones are the whole house of Israel, uh, Ezekiel 37, verse 11. They interpret it to be the birth of the church at Pentecost because the church has replaced Israel, even though Israel is the focal point of all biblical prophecy. And any church that does not understand that God has a plan for Israel and that plan continues to this day is a church that is not understanding God's prophetic program. God said, I believe it was through Jeremiah, you want to destroy Israel? In fact, there was a pastor who took out a, uh, a little ad in the paper in his community about a teaching he was going to do on Sunday evening in his church, and the ad read, How to Destroy Israel. Well, he had Jews come out, and he had Muslims come out, and the place was packed. How to destroy Israel. Muslims were there to find out how to do it. The Jews were there to find out how to stop it. And the pastor got up there and said, you want to destroy Israel? Then you pull the sun out of the sky and the moon out of the heavens and the stars, pull them down because God said, in the day that you can do that, I will forsake my people Israel. And one of the rabbis looked over at his friend and goes, I think it's going to be okay. <laughs> In Ezekiel 38 and 9, it's not about the battle of Armageddon, which we believe it talks about, with real armies attacking the nation of Israel, who is back in their land in the last days and will be rescued by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But the Renovary Bible says it's just about dark forces that are always at work in the world. There is no commentary, one was done, there is no commentary at Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, about the second coming of Christ. No evidence of belief in the rapture. Only that Christ will one day return and overcome the wicked powers. Very generic stuff. Also, Revelation is reduced to a pastoral letter meant to sustain the suffering and hearten the weary faithful. Listen, when I want to be heartened and encouraged, I don't turn to Revelation and read about, you know, fiery comments and and 100-pound and hailstones and trumpets and, and all kinds of horrible things happening, earthquakes and, and, and all. I don't turn to Revelation to be comforted and uplifted. Revelation is all about God's wrath being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world, and God is giving the world a little preview of what's coming so that people could read it and repent and get right with God now so that they don't have to go through that horrible period. The Antichrist and false prophet in chapter 13 are depersonalized as dark forces of evil. The marriage supper of the Lamb to his bride in chapter 19 is not a real event in heaven, but, as they say, symbolic of the many different celebrations that bring joy and jubilation into our lives. The thousand-year reign of Christ in chapter 20 is not a real event, 
and the armies of the world coming against Christ and the saints at Jerusalem after Satan's release merely symbolize the armies of darkness which surround us. One author said this so-called study Bible is one more step on the slippery downward path into deepening apostasy. The very thing we've been dealing with in this series. Let me say this. The Word of God is absolutely essential. It's an absolutely essential part of the believer's arsenal. Without the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we cannot be victorious against the enemy, and he knows it. He knows it. In the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, who wrote that classic, depicts a scene in which a terrible allegorical battle is portrayed against or between Apollyon, which is Satan, and Christian, who represents all Christian believers. Here's the way Bunyan put it. Then Apollyon, seeing his opportunity, began to close in on Christian and wrestling with him, gave him a dreadful fall and Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I am sure of you now. And with that, he had almost pressed him to death so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon was preparing to take his last blow, thereby making an end to this good man, Christian nimbly reached out his hand and caught his sword, saying, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that gave him a deadly thrust, which made him back away like someone who had received a mortal wound. When Christian saw this, he went at him again, saying, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And with that, Apollyon spread his dragon wings and sped away so that Christians saw him no more for a time. John Bunyan knew that spiritual warfare is waged and won by how effectively a Christian holds onto and wields the sword of the Spirit. If you were guarding something very valuable, if a commanding officer in the old days had placed you in charge of guarding something that was very precious, and all you had was your sword. And one evening, out of the shadows came a figure, and he began to move toward you. And you drew your sword to do battle with this enemy. The focal point of the struggle would be for that sword, because whoever controls the sword controls the battle. And the devil knows this. And I'll tell you this, if Satan can somehow get you to let go of your sword, whether you're too lazy to read it or too busy, or if he can tamper with the word itself and put a counterfeit into your hand, like the TNIV or the message or the Renovary Bible, well, he will render the sword of the Spirit ineffective in your life. And he can defeat you also that way. The reason that Christians, I think, don't read their Bibles and have lost faith in the Word of God is because of this very thing, the liberal onslaught against the Word of God. But there's other reasons, too. I think that we don't realize that every time we pick up the Bible, we are holding in our hands truth, truth that has been given to us from Almighty God, the wisdom of God, the Word of God, which God gave to a variety of prophets throughout the Old Testament who wrote these things down for us. Then, of course, Jesus came to give the full revelation of God in human form. And that was written down by the apostles and in the epistles. And John capped it off with the book of Revelation. We don't realize the number of people that have died that we could have a copy of the Word of God in our laps this morning, in our language, where we can read it. We don't appreciate what we have. And if you don't appreciate something, you don't think very highly of it. And that's why the Bible, I'm convinced for the most part, lays gathering dust on our coffee tables while we watch television, which is nothing more than many times the devil's agenda being pumped incessantly into our brains 
That's what this series is all about. It's all about helping you to understand the lies of the devil, but for you to also come to cherish the word of God, which is the truth, that so many have died to give us. And yet in this generation, we don't even bother to read it, let alone stand up for it and defend it. Now, as I said, and I'm done, but the Renovary Bible is based on a bad translation. It's got horrendous study notes that are just liberal and will destroy your faith in the Word of God. But by far the most dangerous element of this Bible is that it is designed to lead you into the whole Renovary movement. What is that? It's a movement to lead the church subtly back into the occultism and mysticism of the early Roman Catholic Church, the practices of the Desert Fathers and others like them, who held to certain spiritual disciplines that embraced occultism and other things, which they called spiritual formation. Some of you have asked me about the emerging church movement. The emerging church movement is based on the very thing we're talking about, going back and embracing some of the methodologies and practices of these ancient mystics and their endeavors to, uh, to experience God. We all want to experience God, right? The devil knows that too. And if you don't seek to experience God the way he has said you are to experience him, but seek to experience him in other ways that are occultic and demonic, you're going to experience something in the spirit realm. It won't be God. This is a serious thing. So next week I want to talk a little bit more about the whole spiritual formation thing. And then the week after, I want to focus on the emerging church for one week. And then we'll move into looking at the scriptures, how we, why we can trust it, why we can know it's authoritative and inerrant and sufficient. And my prayer is that God will give all of us a greater appreciation for and a hunger for the word of God. It is the truth, guys. The truth is powerful. It's living and powerful. Unless the devil can knock it out of your hand or get you to put it down. May God help.